Hebrews chapter 6, the verses 18 through to 20, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made and high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. It is especially the words, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. The forerunner who is for us entered. Now those verses that you have just heard, they are Christ-centered verses, filled and packed with truths concerning our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the refuge to whom we as sinners have fled. He is the one we have laid hold upon. He is the only hope that is set before us. He is the anchor within the veil. He is the forerunner. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he is clearly named and identified even Jesus, the text tells us. So as you look at these verses, even in a very surface way, just kind of casually reading them, you are struck that this one could not be lying in the tomb. It doesn't mention the resurrection, but it is assumed. You know this one is not dead and buried and in the tomb lying, rotting and corroding away. No, this one does not lie under the power of death. He is one who is alive. He's a living hope. He's a living refuge. He's a living anchor. He is a living eternal high priest. These verses make no sense at all if Christ is still dead and still in the tomb. How could he be the refuge and the hope and all these things if he were? He's alive forevermore. We have a living Savior. Therefore, whenever we read our New Testament, as Christians we are utterly amazed and can hardly credit it at all when we are told that there are so-called Christian teachers and preachers who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. Who basically would say things like, oh, the resurrection of Christ, that's a trick with dead man's bones in the body. That his resurrection wasn't literal, that it was just spiritual. There are so-called Christian preachers who teach that. If such ministers exist, they are ambassadors for Satan. 
and not ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They are false messengers in disguise. They are wolves, ravening wolves in sheep's clothing. The early Christians had it as part of their psyche. He's risen. He's living. He's alive. There would be no Christianity at all if he did not rise from the dead. The first disciples, in actual fact, they weren't expecting Christ's resurrection because they came with all the spices. They came with all the preparation. They were going to put more spices on his body. They were expecting him still to be in the tomb. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They were slow to believe it. And so this first day of the week then, they were shocked and perplexed when the tomb was empty. And then these angels appeared. And they said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. What are you doing here? It was a rebuke, wasn't it? He's risen. And those disciples came to see that. And early Christianity became convinced of this. And that's the power behind Christianity. And there would have been no Christianity except for the empty tomb and the risen Lord. But sadly, there are people who still need that rebuke. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? There are still those who are looking for his body. There are still those who believe it was just relocated to another tomb somewhere else. And there are those who have the hope and expectation in archaeology or if they get down to the tradition or they discover other writings that somehow they will find the place of the relocation of the body of Jesus. But it shall never be. Because Jesus was relocated. But he was not relocated as a dead body in another tomb. He was relocated to heaven. To the glory. To the place at the right hand of God. And that relocation is referred to in our text. There are two things here in our text before us. There is this verb to enter, occurring twice. He has made an entrance to another place. He has gone through another door, having left behind the empty tomb. And he's been relocated by this entrance within the veil. Now there are two things here in our text that I want to leave with you. First of all, Jesus has entered within the veil. And then secondly, he has entered within the veil for us as our forerunner. First of all then, the entrance within the veil. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ is now. His body rose. He has a true humanity. A true resurrected body. And that body has to be somewhere. It has to go somewhere. It has to subsist somewhere. In some place. 
in some location at this present time. And Paul tells us of its relocation, and it's a glorious relocation. And he describes it in these terms as entering within the veil. What does he mean? And why does he use these words, the veil? What does he mean by that? Why does he not use another word? Why does he not just say, as he so often says, entered into the heavens, sat down in glory at the right hand of God? But no, he's, he's bringing in a new word here. He's bringing in something else. He wants us to think he's gone within the veil. He's preparing us for something. He's going to tell us about Melchizedek, about the high priest, and the high priest is going within the veil. He's setting us up for the next chapters. And mentioning the veil, because the veil's a curtain, and the curtain is that which separates one room from another room. It's stretched across so that one space is separated from another piece of space, and these two spaces through the veil. From one location, one space-time location, to another space in another location, in another place. So Christ has left one room, he's entered into another room, and it is through the veil. So he's left this world, this age, and he's entered into the next world, to the next stage, into, as we know, heaven itself. And this is part of his exaltation because wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation it consisted in his rising again from the dead. That was the first step. The last step in the humiliation was the laying in the tomb. But the first step of the exaltation is rising again. So he, he rose again from the dead on the third day. He ascended up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he's coming back again to judge the world at the last day. That's Christ's exaltation. Now Paul has already mentioned that a number of times. For example in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He said that he sat down on the right hand of the majesty and high. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Our great high priest is passed into the heavens. Jesus the son of God. But this is the first time he mentions a veil. And he does so because he wants to bring us to the tabernacle. He's alluding to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Not the temple, mind you. He doesn't talk about the temple in Hebrews. We've gone outside the city, as it were. Christ was crucified outside Jerusalem. We have gone without the gate unto him, without the city. And we're looking for a city that have foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We're not looking for an earthly Jerusalem. No, we've gone outside that. We've gone unto Christ without the city. And we're having a wilderness wonder waiting for the heavenly Jerusalem to where Christ has relocated. And we're making our journey. Like those through the wilderness are making their journey. And so the, the tabernacle imagery is the one that the apostle is always using when he speaks about these things in this epistle to the Hebrews. And in the tabernacle, there were two veils. There was the first veil that separated the holy place from the outside court. And then there was the second veil 
The inner veil which separated the holy court, that's where the priests could minister, from the most holy place where nobody could go in, only the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. And it's that second veil that the apostle is talking about here. The veil that separates the holy place, the sanctuary the priests could minister, from the most holy place within that holy cube that we saw about in our studies in Revelation. That holy cube that is going to fill the new cosmos whenever the Lord Jesus comes back again. That veil of it has gone. And Christ has entered within, within that veil into the most holy place. So we as Christians are in the holy place. But we're not in the most holy place. This is what the apostle is, is telling us here. We have gone beyond the first veil. We've been made priests unto God. We've been accepted in Christ. But we haven't yet moved in, beyond into the holy, most holy place. Christ has. And we are to follow him. So Christians on earth are not in the most holy place. We have to wait for the resurrection from the dead. Whenever Christ comes back again, raises our bodies from the dead, and then brings us into that space, into the, the cube, the most holy place, to be with God and with the Lamb in our resurrected bodies forever and ever, throughout all ages, world without end. Now you remember whenever the, the, the disciples were in the upper room, and the upper room is like, like the holy place. And the, the Lord Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he kept saying to them, I'm going away. I'm going to my Father. I'm going beyond the veil. I'm going to sit down at my Father's right hand. I'm leaving you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back again. And I'm going to receive you to be with me forever and ever in your resurrected bodies. But at the moment, I'm leaving you. And I'm going on to my Father, to the most holy place, or as the Apostle says here, beyond the veil, through the veil. He did that when he died and rose again and ascended into glory. He went through the veil. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. And you remember that before he went, he let them hear that high priestly prayer uh, to give them an encouragement, to give them a sample of his intercessory work that he will be doing beyond the veil. He let them have a foretaste of that. And John 17 is the high priestly prayer and it's prayed as if he is beyond the veil. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So that upper room was like the holy place. And there they're in the holy place and they're hearing the high priest, just as he's about to enter into the most holy place and to leave them until his coming back again. And that leaving them was at his resurrection and ascension into heaven itself. In the holy place, 
where the priest could minister, there were three things. There was the light, the lampstand that was fueled by the oil. There was the table of the faces, the showbread of the presence of God that the priests could eat and partake of for their nourishment. And there was the altar of incense. Those things were in the most holy in the holy place at this age side of the veil that we're in now. And we have these things now. We're not in the most holy yet. Our body is in the holy place. We have the light of the word. We have the oil of the Spirit of God. We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures upon our life. We can read the word. We can minister as it were as priests unto God in the holy place. We can feed on the bread. The show bread. The bread of God's presence. We can feed on the word. We have the Lord's table as well. The communion feast. And we have the altar of incense. Because we can offer incense unto God in prayer. To the most holy place. We can pray in the name of Jesus. So we have more than the Old Testament saints. Because in the holy place in the tabernacle. Only the priests could go into it. But now the Lord Jesus Christ has made us all priests. And we can all minister in the holy place. Because the first veil is gone. And Christ has gone beyond the second veil into the most holy place. And so we have the light, the spirit, the bread of God, the nourishment for our souls, the prayer, the gift of prayer, the being able to pray and intercede in Christ's name. In our union to him, we can pray and enter into the most holy place by faith. In our union to Christ and by the spirit of God, and we can pray at the incense altar and our prayers are heard. And we can do all this service in the, in the holy place. We can enter boldly, but not bodily, because that waits the, the resurrection day. So the Lord Jesus Christ has gone beyond. Now you have to remember that Christ made two entrances beyond the veil. The first was in his death. When by his blood he entered in, Father, receive my spirit. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and his spirit made an entrance into the most holy place at the time of propitiation, at the time of atonement. But then he made a bodily entrance, a physical entrance. After his resurrection from the dead, when on the power and ground of the atoning work, he entered in physically and bodily and literally in all his risen humanity into heaven itself. And it's that entrance that the apostle is talking about here. The bodily entrance. The entrance in glory. Paul refers to a crowned high priest here, Melchizedek, a king priest who's entered into the glory, who's set down at the right hand of God, who ever lives to make intercession for us. This is not the entrance at his death. 
but the entrance at his ascension. You have to understand that. So he entered once bodily by virtue of his death and his resurrection. As Paul says in other places in Hebrews, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into the heaven itself. Now to appear. He's visible. His humanity is visible. His wounds are visible. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us. So this is what is meant here. He bodily, after his resurrection, has ascended into the most holy place. But then secondly, not only is Christ entered within the veil, he is entered into the veil for us. Is not what the apostle says, whether the forerunner is for us entered. This is very important. His entrance is for believers. I mean, that's why he left heaven. So that he might enter for us. That is why he came into the world. So that he might back, go back again into heaven for us. You see, the incarnation was necessary for us. Christ coming into the world was necessary for us. But it wasn't necessary for him. He was always in heaven. He always had heaven's glory. He had glory with his Father and he didn't have to leave it. But if, if he's going to bring us with him, then he has to come into the world. He has to be incarnate. And then he has to make that entrance for us. It was necessary for us. And that's what Paul is really stressing here. His leaving heaven was necessary for us. His going back to heaven was necessary for us. Never for him necessary, but most necessary for us. So it's not just about him going into heaven for himself. He would have remained there if that's all it was about. But he left heaven that he might go back again for us. That's why he's a forerunner. It's about his people. It's about saving his people. It's about bringing his people with him. It's about saving them and raising them from the dead and bringing them into his presence forever and ever. That is why the name is brought in here, even Jesus. He was called Jesus. Why? Because he saved his people from their sins. It's all about his people. There's no point in the incarnation apart from his people. There's no point in the death and resurrection apart from his people. There's no point in the going into glory again apart from his people. He's Jesus and it's for us. Emmanuel, God with us. Always with us. Always for us. We are the ones always on his mind. Always on his heart. From the incarnation to the glorification it is all for us and his humanity. For us. Everything Jesus does is for you. Everything. He came for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. He entered into heaven for you. He ministers in the sanctuary in glory for you. And he's coming again 
for you. He is married to his people. He loves his people. Christ is all in all to us. But you know something? We are all in all to him. We are. For us. For you. But particularly focus on what Christ is doing now. In heaven for us. He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. To appear in the presence of God for us. That's why he's gone. To appear for us. To be advocate for us. To plead for us. To intercede for us. And there he ever lives. Hebrews 7 verse 25. Able to save them to the uttermost. That come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. for So he's a powerful saviour. He's a living redeemer. In glory at the right hand of God. He, he pours out his spirit. He does everything from heaven for his people. But this word forerunner. That tells us something more. That tells us that he has entered heaven for them. To prepare a place for them. He has gone on. On his own. But it's not just about himself. He has gone on on his own. For us. For others. So it's about others. And this forerunner. Reminds us that he has others. Because the forerunner is going before a people. The forerunner is the one who sent before the congregation. He's the one who sent before the people of God. And Jesus Christ has just gone before. And he's gone before for them to prepare this way. You see the forerunner does it all for those that are coming behind him. And the forerunner is inseparable from those that are behind him. He's the forerunner for them. He leads them. He's at the front of the crowd. Now this is the only occurrence of the word in the New Testament. But there is no uncertainty about its meaning. It means one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are eventually to follow. That's what a forerunner is. So he, he goes to prepare that place and to make it ready and to make it safe, as it were, for the people to come after him. It's used of the 12 spies in the Old Testament. You remember the 12 spies are sent before? They're the forerunners. They go to make, do the reconnaissance, to check the area, to find a clear passage, to find a clear way for others to follow. They are finding this, the refuge, the safe place. The word refuge occurs here in our text. A safe place. A place of safety, a place of refuge. A place that we can flee onto where we will be safe. Well, the only way we're going to find such a place is if the forerunner goes before and prepares that place for us. 
So the forerunner is obtaining the safety for us. He's finding the refuge for us. But not only that, he secures the land for his people. And the Lord Jesus Christ is is not just a spy who, who comes back again and gives a report, well, take it or leave it. No, he, he's the one who goes into the land and he secures it for his people. He has it as a place of refuge, a place of safety. Even though they're sinners, even though they're unworthy, he has so prepared things that they can come there safely. Rest. The rest. The eternal rest. And so that's what Jesus Christ has done. He went back to heaven to prepare a place for us. To secure it. For sinners. He died for them. He was brought again from the dead by the power of the blood of the everlasting covenant. And he rose for them. And he went into heaven. And he said, I I secure all of this for my people. Everything. It's for them. Do you remember the spy said it's a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and a land of honey, and the spy said it's it's all yours. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing short. It's all yours. It's yours for the taking. The promised inheritance is yours. And Christ is the one who's gone into heaven. And he's obtained all for his people. I take possession of all of this for them by the power of my blood and my resurrection. I take it all for them. Every part of it. The thrones, the angels, the crowns, the harps, the palms of victory, the light and the glory and the streets of gold, the river of life, And the trees of life. And every mansion in the place. I claim it all for my people. That's what's meant by the forerunner here. The one who secures the land. That we may safely arrive at it. This is him. I secure it all for my redeemed. And I pray my father. That they may be with me. And they may behold the divine glory that I have with thee. Whether the forerunner is for us entered. So that is what is meant here. The relocation of Christ's humanity was so important. It's no good him rotting away in a tomb. Whenever we die. If that's the case we'll just rot away with him. But he's not dead. And he's not rotting in the tomb. He's risen. He's alive. He's in his risen humanity. He's gone into heaven. And he's going to bring his people with him. At the last day. Yes our spirits will go to be with the Lord. Just like the dying thief in paradise. But that's not the full redemption. That's not the full salvation. The full salvation is in bodily form. In our glorified humanity, joining Christ and with him forever and ever. And that's what this has secured. The resurrection of the dead 
the firstborn from among the dead, the firstfruits, and we're going to follow. And that's why it's important that you believe in him and that you trust in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other saviour, there is no other refuge, there is no other forerunner. There is no one else. We don't want anyone else. Jesus only. And so, poor sinner, you must say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. You must say, Lord Jesus, remember me, the poor sinner. Be my forerunner. Be my redeemer. Be my refuge. Be my hope. Be my anchor. Within the veil, flee to Christ. Lay hold on Christ. Lay hold on him by faith. And that brings you in your union to him within the veil. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved.